Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, folks. Oliver here. This week, I interview Ben Bear. Chief Business Officer at Spin, the micromobility company backed by Ford, which operate in 65 markets across the US, about their service and how they're different from others in the industry. It's a great discussion. They're like the tortoise in an industry of hares. Micromobility adoption is a long-term prospect, and I like how they think about things and their focus on sustainability for what will be inevitably a decades-long play. Before I dig in, I do want to thank our sponsor for the episode. One of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the intersection between shared services and the governments that they need to work with. With COVID bringing cities around the world to a standstill, we are seeing many of them move forward with key infrastructure changes that prioritise pedestrians, cyclists and other small vehicles. I'm bullish on the operators that will emerge on the other side of this, better at ops and more integrated with their cities as essential services. And that's where populace is important. They are building digital tools that assist government agencies to manage their curbs, streets, and sidewalks with access to intelligent data and analytics tools. Last week, they announced the Open Streets Initiative to provide cities with digital solutions to identify and communicate slow and safe street policies. Oakland, California recently announced that 74 miles of streets would be closed to through traffic in order to make it safer for pedestrians and small sustainable modes to travel for essential trips and create more room for social distancing. Populous works with cities around the world, from Buenos Aires to Baltimore, to help build trust between operators and regulators to see shared mobility become the big success that we think it can be. They run webinars and produce some of the best editorial content about the impact of micromobility on cities in the US that I've seen. If you're looking to educate yourself better on this space, and or are looking for tools to build trust with your local government to help take shared micromobility to the next level, check them out at populous.ai. I'm excited and privileged that they're sponsoring this episode and supporting the work that we do in this space. And now, here's Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Good. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, not at all. Well, you and I have been talking for a while, um, so it's really, really exciting to have a chance to share some of the things that we've been discussing with the, with the wider audience. Hey, look, for everybody's gratification, maybe you could just take us through who you are and your role at Spin. And even in a short thing, you know, how did you end up at Spin? Because I think that's quite an interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. So originally from the East Coast, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, moved out to the Valley and got into the startup world in 2012. Was really fortunate early on to join an early stage startup, about seven people in the mobile advertising space, and go through that montage sequence that everyone always dreams about from a startup perspective. So we went from seven people to over 200 I was a VP of sales as a 23-year-old, had a 50-person team in five countries, and really at that point was probably getting a little too big for my britches and wanted to go out and, and start my own company and do something that would have a bit more of a meaningful impact on the world than advertising. And went out and started a company in the gig economy space focused on the workforce. Uh, basically what we did was we made it easy for delivery workers to pick up shifts from multiple on-demand delivery companies and created sort of a liquid work- workforce. 
maybe a bit early for that. It would have been a, a useful uh, a service now. But after about a year and a half and, and almost a million dollars raised, my co-founder and I, who had been through the successful montage sequence and knew by extension uh, that we did not have that product market fit, ended up winding the company down. Didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but knew I wanted to get into something early again and talked to about 15, 20 different companies. And Spin, which was doing dockless bikes at the time, really jumped out at me. I love riding bikes. I, I always have. Uh, it brings me a great peace of mind mentally. Uh, it's a great way to get around. And it felt to me like a, a really binary outcome where, you know, it was this crazy idea, dockless bikes. If it worked, it could be really big. It could be transformational. And if it didn't work, it'd be exciting and we'd find out pretty quickly. That was back in 2017. So my first day, I actually joined as the, the head of business development and partnerships. And then Derek, our CEO, had me fly out on a Saturday to Seattle because we were going to be launching Seattle, uh, which was the first you know big bike share stationless mobility permit in the U.S. the next day. So I was in the warehouse, you know, putting together the bikes, putting the lights on and just helping us get those vehicles on the street. Um, so there's a couple of years ago now, uh, and I know micromobility years are, are almost like dog years in terms of how quickly uh, things have moved. And so from there, it's it's been quite a wild ride from uh, scaling up to about 50 bike markets. We had the lead in exclusive markets in the U.S. At that point, winding down to just a few markets with the pivot to scooters, getting bought by Ford, and then scaling back up to 65 markets again in a year. It's been uh, quite a wild ride. So my mandate now is I'm responsible for our market footprint. So government, university partnerships, community partnerships, real estate partnerships on the spin hub side, responsible for our policy team, which leads work on the regulatory side, as well as on the, the initiatives front uh, on key issues like sustainability and streets and equity, and then business development, working on strategic partnerships that can help us grow non-linearly. Yeah, awesome. One thing that I've really admired about Spin has been this bird and lime, I think, were really the the big ones that, that really took a lot of the headlines and things. But Spin has just been this quietly chugging away in the background, continuing to build a, what seems like a relatively solid business. So what I'd love for you to take me through is how has Spin thought about this differently? And I really want to kind of dig in on a couple of specific things. Really, like I'd love to hear a, a lot about the charging stations. We've had Colin Roche on here from Swift Mile and how you've thought about the parking and then the ability to be able to integrate into things like mobility as a service and, and why Ford and the backing there makes you different from others. Yeah, absolutely. So I think all of the things that we're doing differently stem from a different mindset that we've had since the beginning. We laid out a partnership promise in 2018 with key principles like never launch without permission, scale responsibly, share data uh, with our partners proactively. And we've stuck to that. It was something that actually attracted Ford to us in the first place. We were a little bit smaller, but when they talked to folks in the industry and folks at cities and universities, they all said generally good things about us. Don't get me wrong. We couldn't have done, we likely couldn't have done what what we did without the other players pushing the envelope and moving quickly and, and forcing cities to face this. It's not the approach that we took or that we would take, but we were able to take this position in the industry because the industry was growing really quickly. Where it comes from is that you know our team, especially on the, the government side, 
comes from cities. So Kyle Rowe, who's our head of government partnerships, actually wrote the first stationless mobility permit for Seattle, liked the way that we worked with them and, and came over and joined us. Brian, who runs our policy team, comes from the federal side with the Senate. Kay, who runs policy initiatives, was with San Francisco and New York City for more than 10 years. And so we really have that DNA in the company. And what that partnership approach has led to is us trying to really find solutions that serve cities and their residents best. And so Spin Hubs is a big component of that. We see ourselves with the backing of Ford as able to play a longer game than some of the other competitors. We don't have to worry about you know, where our next round is going to come from. And that's a tremendous luxury because we do see this as a very long game. Alternative mode share in the U.S. is less than 1%. That means 99% of people are not taking bikes or scooters or, or one wheels to get around. And so it's so, so early uh, in the overall evolution of this space. Where the charging stations come in is obviously their infrastructure, right? And so we're able to go to cities and make long-term investments in infrastructure that treat micromobility as a long-term sustainable part of the transportation network. And we're able to fund those stations, which is really valuable, especially at a time like today, and, and build out those networks. What it does for cities is it helps with parking management, it brings order to the chaos, as, as Colin likes to say, and I think probably said on your, on your podcast. It brings the service more reliably to consumers. So that's a big aspect of it, especially in equity zones. We can make sure that there are always scooters where there need to be. And then it also brings us operational efficiencies. In the sense that someone can always, they know where that they can find the scooters. So in other words, it's like, because there are these hubs, for everybody's context, for, for listeners who maybe didn't hear the episode with, with Colin, these hubs are like parking they're like the dock equivalent of a docked bike share system, except they're kind of open. They, you know, you can park scooters not there or you can park them there. But and if you charge them, if you park them there, then you can plug them into charge. Exactly. I think one of the challenges that Dockless is frankly still overcoming is delivering on that reliability. Right. So I go outside in the morning. I know my car is going to be there 99 percent of the time. And then 99 percent of the time from there, it's going to likely turn on and I'll be able to to go to work. Docked bikes have delivered on that to a greater extent than you know shared fleet micromobility has because they have these locations all over dense urban cores. And so what we're trying to do is provide the reliability of a dock system with the flexibility and the freedom of a dockless system, really the best of, of both worlds. And that's an example of an, an investment that cities really care about and that we're able to make as part of Ford, again, because we're able to play this longer game. On the mobility as a service front, this is another thing that you know really gets at that core problem of how do we make it convenient and affordable enough to not take a car, right? To change that default for folks. And if I've got to piece together scooters and then trains and buses and walking and Uber and Lyft and all of these different ways of getting around and figure that out, it's, it can be very confusing. And so the idea behind our approach to mobility as a service, which we're really pioneering in Pittsburgh with an organization that we've put together called the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective. So it includes us, Spin, providing electric scooters, and we'll be trialing electric bikes there likely as well, 50 charging stations, Waze providing carpooling, Zipcar providing car sharing, and then the transit app tying it all together as an integrated mobility as a service 
experience for consumers is something that we put together and in partnership with the city of Pittsburgh, we're going to be launching it really as the first example of a privately organized consortium style of mobility as a service where the city doesn't have to pay anything. They just said, we've got these mobility challenges that we wanted to solve. Come to us with a collection of organizations that are going to work together to solve these challenges. And so that's one version of mobility as a service that we're really excited about. We're supportive of different approaches that cities are taking all over the world, but it's something that, again, as an industry, we really need to lean into in order to beat the cost and convenience of, of taking a personal car to work every day. Yeah, yeah. It's been the holy grail of micromobility really since the get-go to work out how to do that, you know, because it's things like scooters work in some regard but even if you look at horace's graph around where do scooters actually get used it's only for the short stuff and so micromobility as an industry will really blossom far greater if it works out how to integrate itself in a wider sense and so i think you know it's a it's an admirable thing that you guys are, are trying to do it hey i want to dig in a little bit of, around just understanding how COVID has impacted you recording this in mid-may so just take us through kind of what that impact has been, where are your markets predominantly and how are those being affected? And then how are you thinking about reopening if you are? Yeah, so it's been a real crucible for us and, and obviously the industry. We're currently offering essential services to essential workers in eight cities. We actually are seeing good results so far, not just in terms of social benefit, but in terms of us being able to leverage a relatively lean operations model to provide those services in a cost-efficient way. And so we're actually going to be ramping back up to 16 markets in the U.S. open. And we want to open up as many of our markets as we can so that we can offer these services. But it's been pretty positive so far. One thing that's been really interesting is that the trips are significantly longer. So we're seeing that the average trip is, I think, 25% longer than it was in the past. And so maybe people aren't taking those multimodal trips where they're getting on a bus and then they're getting on a scooter, but they're taking a scooter the entire way. So that's been really interesting to see. Another way that COVID has changed our business is that it's really changed the conversation with cities from, hey, this is something that you know, companies want to offer and let's figure out how we can you know, do it in a responsible way to, we need transportation, right? In Portland, we are going to be shutting down a lot of public transit routes, and we need to cover for that. We need to provide a way to get around. And so we've been able to work with cities, and Portland's a great example. Kansas City's another, where they've cut fees so that we can offer more affordable services to riders. In Portland, the costs are lower, not just for essential workers, but for all Portland residents as a result of the uh, relationship that we were able to work out with the city. Kansas City's waiving all fees for scooter companies and so long term, I think something we're thinking about is, you know, how do we find that right balance in the future where we can offer services in equity zones, we can deploy scooters in places of concern for the transportation network, where it's not you know, the middle of a college campus or a tourist area or the downtown core, so that scooters really are part of that transportation network. Free industry is not going to take care of all of that by itself, the free markets, if you left it to all of the companies, even those that have social good in mind, they'd end up deploying where the scooters make the most money. So how do we work with cities to create those incentives and structures in order to provide services everywhere where scooters are needed and not just in the most profitable 
locations. And I hear you on that. Do you think that that will then turn around and end up being like subsidies? You could see that. I mean, obviously, cities and and transit agencies are, are pretty slammed right now from a financing perspective. We don't want to take money from them. The fee offset approach is something we're pursuing with with a number of markets. Another approach that we're starting to pilot, and we'll, we'll have more to say about this in the next month or so, is actually working with foundation partners to offset costs for trips and, and monthly rentals for essential workers. And so that's another model where you know there are these public good pools of capital that want to support folks in a time of need. How can we work with them in order to bring services that we might not otherwise be able to offer to different parts of the markets that we serve? That makes sense. Just so I can also get my head around your ops, with the scooters that you have at the moment, do they have swappable batteries or are you, you know, there's obviously the, there's the thing there about the charging. I just really want to understand because you're the first operator that I've talked to who actually uses the charging stations and the part that I'm trying to get my head around is just that like, because I can see the agglomeration benefits, I can see that maybe it, you know, reduces your OPEX, but as I'm thinking about when you, when you were saying with COVID, you've got down really operationally lean, like what, where did you get those operational improvements from? I think a lot of it is just coming from maturity as a company. And so, you know, like the entire industry, we've had to get a lot tighter operationally as we've matured and, and focused on unit economics Something that we have leaned into from the beginning and really focused on is working with employees rather than contractors. And so it allows us to be a bit more adaptive to the environment, and it's allowed us to really be efficient in terms of how we're deploying scooters, how we're maintaining them. It's allowed us to change our processes around making sure that the scooters are wiped down and sanitized every night in accordance with new procedures. And so that's something that we're able to do since we've really focused on uh, just working with employees rather than than contractors with our operational model. Cool. No word on the swappable batteries? Uh, we haven't deployed any swappable batteries yet. It's definitely uh, in the experiment pipeline for us, however. Cool. I'd love to hear from your side about how you're seeing the industry evolve. And, and so again, we're recording this mid-May. Jump has been sold to Lime. Lime's done a new round. There's a sort of a wider, big question around the sustainability. I think of those of those early players. Bird's done a, obviously a pretty substantial layoff, and that path to how these businesses get built. Obviously, you guys have taken quite a different path being backed by Ford. And you, you've mentioned earlier uh, in this discussion that you you found that that allowed you to be more resilient. But it also has advantages and disadvantages with every approach, right? Like how you think about that and then what the implications are for that in the short and the longer term and the sort of in the wider industry. Yeah, I mean, consolidation is something that folks have been talking about in the industry for a while and expecting. Um, We're now starting to see it in the simplest possible, you know, in terms of the effect on us, the simplest possible way to think about it is that it's one fewer company that we're competing against in a competitive permit application, say if we're applying for DC or if we're applying for Chicago or New York City when that opens up. You know, it is a strong competitor, right? We have a lot of respect for Jump and what they did for the industry with Social Bicycles, really a pioneer. And Lime has been a very strong competitor as well. The combination gives them good user base, doesn't really change that much from a UX perspective because Lime was already integrated into the Uber app before, gives Lime a a strong e-bike. We recognize that. And so multimodal uh, deployments are continuing to be a trend and something that 
we are expecting to continue. And, and part of our strategy is part of Ford, right? Obviously, we want to win on the vehicle long term. I do think it's just the beginning. I think a lot of the companies that got out of the gate so fast and got to billion dollar, $2 billion valuations so fast, we're following the blitzscaling playbook where you get as big as you can, as fast as you can, and get so much money and so many users on the platform that nobody can compete. And what's different here compared to ride sharing in particular is that the cities have a lot more control, right? Cars driving you know, on the street from one neighborhood to the next look very much like regular cars. And so it's a little harder to enforce. When you're putting assets out on the public right of way, the cities have a lot more ability to enforce and a lot more ability to pick which vendors they want to work with. And that's a major trend that we see. These permits are really valuable. Being a good partner to the cities and providing a, a reliable service to consumers positions you well to win those competitive permits. And so, you know, I think it is going to be fewer players globally. You'll probably have strong regional players continue to make their mark. I think Tier is doing a, a very impressive job in, in Germany and, and Europe. But transportation has always been an expensive um, and it's really valuable to society. And the trends are all very positive. But getting from here to there is, is going to be expensive. And as part of Ford, I think we're, we're well suited to play that long game. I think the other thing that being part of Ford gives us that's really valuable is we're part of a broader transportation ecosystem beyond just micromobility. And so when we secure spin hub locations in dense urban cores or on campuses, we can think about what could the value of this mobility hub be to AV pickup and drop off in the future for mobility services that, that haven't even been conceived of yet. We're also able to think as we go through the motions in this market about what different things like data sharing and permitting will mean in an AV world in the future and how that might be able to, to we might be able to learn things now that pay off later in that game. I hear you on, on that. The only kind of pushback that I'd want to give and I'd love to hear your thoughts on is that for the entire auto industry is just going through carnage right now. Like it's just sales are down 90% in New Zealand for the last month. And I say that, I mean, I look around the world, like the US is every, everything has kind of fallen off a cliff. And the risk, of course, with something like this is that for you guys, you're like a rounding error on a budget on some person at Ford. And so that resilience I hear you about like being able to, but it, it relies on there being a long-term commitment there from Ford. And the, the, the sense that I get is that it's there, but there's always that risk that you guys, you know, you're, you're because you are kind of tied in with that, that you don't have that level of independence. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really fascinating about Ford and has been for me coming in for the outside is that, you know, although it's a 200,000 person company, although it's hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue per year, it's still family controlled and family run. And Bill Ford has always been an environmentalist. He has a TED talk from a few years back where he talked about the need for sustainability and how cities needed to change. And he's a big backer. And so, yes, in, in corporate America, things can always change and priorities can change. But you know, urbanization, it's 500-year trend. We don't see that changing. Global warming isn't going to go away. And you know, this crisis has further highlighted the need to make changes in terms of how we get along. The skies are clearer than they ever have been 
before when you go outside and, and look at cities across the globe. So we really feel commitment all the way from the top. And I also think that there's a tendency, you know, coming out of the last financial crisis to really worry about auto companies and, and think that they, you know, are at a huge risk at a time like this. And, you know, while it's true that all industries are at risk at a time like this where demand has been shocked and supply has been shocked globally and we don't know for how long, Ford came into this with $37 billion in the bank. And so they had more cash on hand than you know, all but a few companies in the U.S. And so you know, unlike the, the last financial crisis where there was a lot of concern about the ability to get through it, I feel, I sense that there's a lot of confidence now with the, the strength of the cash position and some of the preemptive moves that management made coming in. I didn't come here to boost car sales, but you know, for better or for worse, we are seeing some data in China that folks are going back to personal vehicles away from public transit. And yeah, I've seen seen similar figures. Yeah, and in some ways, it's frustrating as a as someone who's obviously a big proponent of micromobility to see the happening. But but the reality is right is that people want to be able to travel safely. And I think in some ways that makes me incredibly bullish on micromobility because, you know, especially in the sort of own space where there's less constraint around operations, governments and things like that, like we're seeing huge sales in the e-bike space, for example, like the e-bike manufacturers have been having some of the best months ever because everybody's like, I'm in lockdown and now I can buy an e-bike and get around and it's safe and I don't have to deal with anybody else, you know. Exactly. And cities are opening up streets to bikes and scooters and pedestrians and closing them down to cars. And, you know, really, I think we've seen a couple of years of progress from an infrastructure perspective in this country in a few months. And that's tremendously exciting. And cities are almost trying to outdo themselves in terms of, you know, how many miles of streets they're able to close down to cars and open up to micromobility. And when we think about that change that's needed in alternative mode share, you know, going from less than 1% today in the U.S. to 10, 20, 30, maybe even the 50% that we see in the Netherlands that is always the, the dream, that perception of safety, you know, in terms of being willing to get on the first time and not having the rational fear that a car that someone looking at their cell phone distracted is going to hit you is top of the list, right? We need people to feel safe in order to try this out, in order for it to become more mainstream. Because yes, while the competitive landscape is changing and there's consolidation that's happening, none of it really matters if we don't grow the pie overall, right? And we're, we're not here fighting over the 1%, right? We want to be you know, growing the pie from 1% to 10 to 20 to 30 to 50. And then you know, there's a, the, the rising tide there, I think, will be supportive of having multiple you know, strong partnership-oriented companies in the field. I've been thinking a lot that, about that as well, especially as I was prepping for this interview, because obviously Ford has thought deeply about this idea of kind of the job to be done in mobility. And as you kind of alluded to with Bill Ford getting up and saying, look, I'm an environmentalist, but really at the end of the day, like Ford is a mobility company, right? And that's why they've done the chariot and they've ended up buying spin in, the, in that form. How do you see them looking at the owned micromobility market? Because the thing about it, right, is that they're, at the end of the day, they're a manufacturer, and that's what their skill set is in. Do you know if there's any sort of plans for you to expand into that area, also leveraging your brand? Because it like makes sense to me that the spin brand is the shared stuff, and then you know that there's also vehicles that come out that are 
I guess I don't know if I'm asking questions that you can't answer, but <laughs> um, I'll wink twice. No, I, nothing. <laughs> Nothing to announce in terms of selling vehicles at, at this point. We are beginning to experiment with monthly rentals, um, which we think is an interesting model. You know, again, in terms of providing that reliability. If you're in a place where we don't have density of service and you know there's not access to a reliable shared fleet, how can we give folks something that they can take home with them and, and charge? Uh, that's something we're starting to experiment with. And then on the vehicle side, I think. The whole we're in the first inning there as well, um, and certainly long term, it's an area where we want to win, and and we want to you know we want to have Ford quality Ford produced vehicles out there on the street. But what Ford's really good at is scale, right? Creating hundreds and thousands and millions of vehicles, and we're still in that iterative phase right now. I mean, a year ago, everyone was still using consumer scooters. Out on the street and and just sort of putting them out there and and seeing what would happen. Yeah, no, I hear you on that. To go back to that earlier point that you know you and I discussed around sort of like the open streets initiative and and the fact that we have seen that like very rapid changeover in infrastructure. Well, the, the conversations around infrastructure have changed materially in the last two or three months. Part of that idea of being a mobility company, right, is this idea that in some ways there should be advocacy around that infrastructure that makes it safe for the use because at the end of the day like we know that people if there are bike lanes people feel way safer to use that stuff how do you think about it and your role for being able to go out and advocate for these these things because in some ways right you've got a really solid place to start from which is you're coming in and you're building the infrastructure for the parking but you want to link that infrastructure together so that someone can easily safely access all of that and i kind of want to ask that in the in the wider context of how are you thinking about the regulatory environment changing in the time that you guys have been operating yeah absolutely so i'll I'll focus on the streets element first and then maybe zoom out and talk about the the wider regulatory environmental changes so on the street side you know again in keeping with playing the long game and really trying to not fight over the one percent but grow the entire pie We have a policy initiatives team that focuses on moving the ball forward really as advocates as far as we can on key topics like sustainability, equity, streets. On the streets front, we've really focused on tactical urbanism. And so, you know, it can sound kind of like a buzzword, but the way I think about it is how do we help cities and universities build infrastructure faster and cheaper and make it more appealing than ever before? so that they don't get bogged down and unable to do anything. And I think one thing that we're seeing is that cities are buying into that old Winston Churchill philosophy of never waste a good crisis. And so they're they're trying to make as much progress as they can, as quickly as they can, and we're trying to be supportive of that. So in the past, examples of things that we've done are we've built bike lanes overnight in Salt Lake City with Team Better Block, Bike Utah, and the city of Salt Lake. Uh, one thing that we're doing now is a better barrier challenge where we're actually, uh, we have a competition for urban designers to come up with a better bike barrier because we've got these open streets right now, but they can't all stay closed to cars forever, but maybe we can convert some of them into quick build protected lanes. And when you say barrier, you mean like something to place between where the car would be and where, and so that there's actually a segregation. Exactly. And we think that that's essential. We, we wouldn't stop pursuing infrastructure in a particular place until the protected lane network was really built out. And so 
that's really a huge focus for us and, and I think is essential, as I mentioned earlier, to the growth of the entire industry. We have great data as well to help inform some of those projects. So we know where people are riding scooters where there aren't bike lanes. And then we can use that to facilitate conversations with advocates and with cities to try and get projects off the ground there. Zooming out, looking at sort of the wider regulatory landscape and how things are changing. I think in the US, you've had really rapid iteration where cities have tried different things, you know, sometimes with a lot of thought behind it and sometimes not, and iterated. And we've gotten to a place where most of the major cities seem to be coalescing around limited vendors between one and five, depending on the number of residents in the city, really working with partners who are able to support longer-term investments, who are able to offer equity programs, who are going to be around in a year or two, right? I think cities have been through this this rigmarole with bike share where it came and there were lots of promises made and then, you know, OFO and Mobike and then they were gone within a year and now they're worried about the same thing happening with scooters and and we're really trying to say, look, like we're going to be here. We're in this game together and and we want to make something that works long-term. I think, you know, if you look at Europe and and other parts of the world, uh, it's about a year to two years behind where the U.S. is from a permitting perspective. And that's starting to change now as well. And so you're seeing tenders in cities like Paris and Lyon. um, And we expect that to become more and more the case uh, over time. Because without that, what ends up happening is the city gets whichever vendors are willing to come and and spray as much money as they they can at, at the city for as long as they can, rather than the best partners for meeting the particular transportation needs of that city. That is in part why I was asking you about the Ford question and the Ford backing is because it's it, because that is the question that I, I you know I asked Joe Krause of Lime how can cities know that you're going to be around and and his answer was like look we're in this for the long haul and yet they are also subject to the dynamics of the industry right which is they just you know their round was eighty percent lower than their last round and this industry has been really hard hit by COVID but it was also part of a general dynamic as well which is the industry is consolidating and it grew very fast in the beginning and kind of on the back of, well, we thought everything was just going to continue to have the insane growth rates that we had in the beginning. In actual fact, it kind of reached this relatively steady state after a certain period of time. If I may kind of expand on that, you know, we kind of had that early period, right? And what you see is for you guys, I imagine, you've got a bunch of networks and you're constrained in your ability to expand, even though there might be demand there, right? Like you can see that the mobility hubs, when they go in, you've got the scooters, but you're kind of limited to, I don't know, a thousand scooters in a city or 2,000 scooters in a city do you think that what's going to happen over time is that those that cities are ever going to allow that to just like effectively allow the market to just start to decide this you're like well we can prove that if we continue to expand there's actually a market here for twenty thousand scooters in the city or is it going to be in the same way that we've looked at bikes until now which is you know oh we'll kind of build out the bike network and we'll only allow a certain number of bikes this capped model, right? Do you think we'll end up with a situation where the market will be allowed to decide these things in most of these cities? I do. I think cities are very open to growing the fleet to match demand. And you have to grow responsibly in order to do that, not over just you know weeks and months, but over years. Because again, we're talking about fundamental behavioral change for consumers, or we're talking about new generations of consumers coming into cities from universities who never get the car in the first place. So it's going to take it's going to take a while. 
I think that if you go out and you drop 10,000 vehicles on the street, you know, sort of the Dallas, the San Diego approach, then, and that behavior change hasn't happened yet, that's where you get some really big problems and, and you're sort of feeding into some easy media narratives and some bad pictures of lots of bikes and scooters piled together. That's what we want to avoid. I think scaling up with demand is something that we're very open to as a provider. And I think cities are as well. Uh, and I think what you're seeing with them dramatically ramping up the miles and miles of streets that are being shut down to cars and opened up to micromobility and pedestrians indicates that they want to go big, right? They want that behavior change to happen. And we're partners with them in, in making that change happen. In order to do that, you need the mindset shifts, you need the services to be really reliable, you know, as reliable as a car when you go out of your house in the morning. And you need people to feel safe. And all those things are, are things that we're working on and that we don't expect to stop working on anytime soon. Cool. I'm aware we're kind of running up against time. So I, I have one final question. Spin, lime, jump, bird, tear. They're all companies with four-letter names. What is with that, Ben? Do you know where that comes from? Why that is the case? Why have we not seen uh, some more multi-syllable names for scooter companies? Yeah, I wish I had a, a more compelling answer for this. I, I wish we had all met up and, and you know had a secret process where we decided on this, but it's just not the case. I think the reality is that one of the compelling elements of the micromobility model is that the vehicles drive a lot of the user adoption and, and, and user growth. And so having a short name um, that's easy to remember as a consumer product where you're just seeing something on the street walking by is to your benefit. So short name, different color, all very easy to remember. Of course, what we're pushing for is that you know we're able to differentiate in more ways than just which four-letter word and which color our vehicles have. And so that's where investments in infrastructure and charging stations and vehicles all come into play. Because I don't think that's going to be the differentiation long term when you look back 10, 20, 30 years from now about what made the, the best micromobility companies. You saying about the colors just reminds me of this very brutal discussion that was well, brutal. Brutal is probably the wrong word. So we had a, a scooter panel at the micromobility in Europe, the conference in Europe, and we had, you know, Cirque and Tier and... I was on that Voy. one. Oh, were you? Yeah. Oh, that's right. You were on that panel. And it was great because it, there was that question, right? Which is like, you all think that you're different. Like what differentiates you? And I don't think it was you who said it, but it, I, think, I think there was an argument between Voy and Cirque, which is like one of us was like, well, we're orange. And then, and then Voy was, and then Voy, I know you guys are orange as well, but it was Voy came out and was like, yeah, um, we're orange. And then I think Cirque was like, well, we were orange first. And it was a sort of, you know, it was quite a, quite a funny um well, boy, they clearly should have leaned into the three-letter name piece. Right? Oh, I That's, know, yeah. right? It was their yeah. opportunity to shine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Well, look, this has been super fun. I mean, I, I think that if I if I may provide some... It, it, mentally, how I think about you guys is that you're the hello bike of this space, which is, you know, in China during the, the kind of OFO and Mobike explosion, hello bike was the one that kind of went off, started in tier two and three cities and eventually built the biggest, you know, it is now the biggest player in China um, because they took a slow and steady approach and they just sort of were smart about it and they didn't go kind of crazy and explode and sort of self-destruct in that in that process as well um so yeah no look hats off to you guys i mean i've really watched you for for a long time and it's great to finally have a chance to sit down and, and chat with you about what you're working on 
Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we can do it in person one of these days. But thanks for having me and uh, stay safe. Will do. For the folks who, who might want to track you down or have a chat with you, what's the best way to do it? Are you on, you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Ben W. Bear, B-E-N-W-B-E-A-R. And then my email is just ben at spin.pm. Awesome. Excellent. Well, look forward to having you back on in, in the future so that we can chat about um, how, how those expansion plans are going post-COVID. All right. Thanks, Oliver. Great chatting. Cheers.